Okay, today I'm on a, in uh, the High Street Newmarket with Tony Oves. Good who, morning to you, Simon. Good morning, Tony. Um, Newmarket correspondent for both the Sporting Life and the Racing Post for more years than most people care to remember. Gallop watcher and general man about town. Yeah, and now uh, I write stable twos throughout the races. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted, we were talking last night. And you were yeah. telling me, I want to go straight into your great friendship you had with the late Henry Cecil. Yeah. Tell us about Henry. I had a, a very special relationship with Henry. Uh, when I came to the town, I was obviously, I was uh, office, office bound and I was doing, uh, for the you know, for the sporting life, I was doing race reports, going out and I got, prom got promoted within and uh, got sent up to Newmarket. Well, it was like, uh, you know, dropping a spy behind enemy lines in a, in a paratroop. And uh, when I landed, uh, didn't know where I was going or anything. Didn't know we'd never been to the gallops, you know. But uh, thankfully, uh, Henry took a shine to me from well, not from day one, but we had uh, a very similar likeness in clothes. He liked uh, he liked uh, nice shirts, designer, you know, designer jeans, designer shoes, and everything. So we soon were on the same wavelength, and. Uh, we would just uh, discuss, what, if I bought a shirt, Henry would go out the next day and he'd buy six and say, come and have a look at these, Tony, you know? So he, he made my life a lot easier. He would, uh, we'd go up on the gallops, uh, you know, up to the Alba Hatry or up on, up on uh, Warren, well, Warren Hill, you know, Monday, Tuesday, you know, one canter on Monday, two canters Tuesday, gallop Wednesday, wherever they were, whether it was the lime kilns, whether it was across the flat, and uh, he he was he couldn't have been more helpful. Not like a lot of people. It was just a lot of people. I think were trying to fathom me out to find out who who I was and what what I was before they sort of befriended me. But uh, Henry just was just. I think I would have left a long. T if it hadn't been for Henry, I would have left Newmarket a long time ago. But he sort of like embraced me and made my life a lot easier. Uh, we obviously saw some fantastic horses with him you know during that time you know Frankel being the obvious one for everybody and uh, I remember the first time I saw first time I went up and saw Frankel he was as a yearling and he was going up where uh, the side hill canter which is you know the side hill canter takes you back into Warren Place and uh, he went up there and that was it you know there was a there was a bee in his bonnet from that from the he knew be, he just instinctively knew before before then that he had a, a superstar on his hands, you know. But I was always welcome uh, at Warren Place for Christmas parties, barbecues, you know, visits to his rose garden, you know. And we just uh, uh, one of the things I did do during my spell at the Sporting Life was uh, to uh, ghost his column. He 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 did one at once a fortnight, so that was like. Uh, that was a joy in itself because Henry invariably wanted me to go racing with him uh, and be entertained. So like he would go, Tooney, uh, you know, head head tilted. Tooney, have you uh, tried the seafood at uh, Doncaster Races? Oh, it's it's delicious, you know. And uh, so when we get in the car, I'd be writing notes, he'd be talking. We'd get up there, lovely crab, Tooney, lovely crab, you know. So. We'd go up there, we'd watch his horse run, and then we'd be coming back down the A1, you know, but it was just an amazing time, you know, and... Uh, he, used to, he used to text you and say, come over. 
Oh yeah, he, he uh, one thing about him was he, he actually hated being on his own. So in that big house, there was, I don't know how many rooms there was in there, because I never went to, to every room in the house, but he'd, uh, he'd split up with his, nat his wife Natalie, and uh, he was uh, in that big house on his own, so he'd like ring me up and he'd go, uh, what you doing? You know what you doing? I said, well, I'm just sat at home with my three children because I was on my own with the three kids. He said, uh, have you, you know, have you got any wine? And I said, yeah, plenty. Of it. Bring bring a few bottles of tuna, you know. So, and then I obviously had to get a taxi home, but I'd take the car up, you know, because he said, bring the girls, bring the girls. Cause he loved the girls, you know, as well. I think he had uh, ideas on my youngest daughter Grace being the first woman to wear. Uh, to win the Grand National. So he wanted a groomer for that, but uh, that never happened, unfortunately. But he used to like, we'd sit there chatting and drink, having a few glasses of wine, and he used to always give them, he used to either draw little sketches for them or give them a little trinket to take away when we went home, you know, like silver pot, uh, pill, pill pots, you know, and stuff like that. But uh, just, uh, you know, a legend of a man. And then, you know, obviously went through a lot of time I became uh, Tom Queeley's agent, which delighted Henry because he, you know, he thought, great. So we were back. This was after my time working uh, for the Racing Post. I, I, I sort of unfortunately lost my job down to uh, unforeseen circumstances. And uh, sort of six months later, I got taken over, taken over as uh, Tom Queeley's agent. And the first one that was delighted with the appointment was, was Henry Cecil, who obviously had a close dealings with Buck and all of Tom's rides as he was stable jockey. And uh, obviously it was a sad loss the day that, you know, that he, he, he passed. I actually went to uh, to Trinidad uh, on a holiday and there was a, someone told me these Nima papaya leaves uh, helped the cancer, you know. And uh, so I brought them back with all the paperwork. I immediately took them up to Henry, left them there for him to, just to check it out. Next day, I get a call from him. He says, well, what are you doing, Tony? You know, I says, just at home. He says, are you driving these days? And I, and I uh, said, yeah, I've been driving back a long time now. And uh, he said, well, come up. So I, I, sort of, I went up to see him. And he's, he was very frail then. And uh, he, uh, he said to me, uh, I've got all these shirts, Tony. They were all designer shirts, absolutely beautiful shirts. He said, I'll never wear them again. He says, you know, you and I have shared like our passion for passion for fashion, you know. Uh, and even though it was like sort of then he still had that sort of the spark in his eye, and he he bought some he, you know, he he didn't want Jane who was his his wife then. He bought these loafers, uh, like uh, navy loafers that he that he that he liked, and she knew about those ones. But he was still had that like childishness about him, that he says. She doesn't know about these ones, but I bought some black ones as well. And he was delighted. So off we went to uh, to the orchid orchid house, and he he went. I mean, God bless her, Jane got him off the cigarette off the cigarettes for a, 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 a quite a period of that time, which uh, helped helped him survive longer. But he still liked a, 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 a sneaky smoke, and he was in there. Again, like it's like a schoolboy looking for his mum in case he gets caught out with a cigarette. And he was like looking like this, you know, sort of thing. You know, but uh, just just an absolute delight. You so know. that must have been a terrific time with the Frankel period. Oh, amazing. I, uh, 
I uh, took over. I, at the time I was working for the Sport and Life, there was a, a, a lad called uh, Keith Bradley, who was a friend of mine, and I was asked to uh, become George, George Duffield's agent through a friend in uh, a friend in Trinidad. They were very close, and George wanted it. He wanted a new agent, and he thought I was the ideal candidate. And then George, if anyone knows George Duffield, he's like a hundred and fifty percent. And I said, look, I'd love to be his agent, but I couldn't give it hundred and fifty percent. I'm working for the Sport and Life, and uh, obviously my first priority is the the writing for the Sport and Life, and that would be a, a secondary job. So I said. But I have this chap, uh, Keith Bradley, he's, he's like a bank manager. He's absolutely rigorous. And, and uh, Keith uh, took over George and did really, really well with him. And then obviously uh, he had uh, Seb Saunders, which he made joint champion jotty. Anyway, uh, it got uh, to Frankel's career. And uh, as a two-year-old, uh, Keith was still doing Tom's rides, doing obviously doing very well for him. And uh, as a three-year-old, he'd worked as an agent then for 17 years. I was on my arse, quite literally, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, that I'd left the, I'd left the racing, racing post and I was scratching around, you know, just trying to survive, to be honest with you. And, you know, in, in life, not many people come along that you've done a favour for and repay that favour but Keith rang me up and he said what are you doing these days and I said uh, very little to be honest with you I said I'm, I'm looking for jobs but it's hard you know and he said do you fancy becoming Tom Queeley's agent and I thought are you joking and he says no no because obviously Frank was there and he said uh, and, I, and that's what I did you know and so it was like I, like I looked up to heaven and said Frank there's a God in heaven you know and uh, Tom and myself were just insepar inseparable. It was like, I wouldn't say like father and son, but we were, we, we still are. We still are very, very close, you know. And uh, along with Henry, you know, it was, it was just a fantastic time. The first time uh, I booked the ride for, for Frankel, which you imagine, can you imagine that? You're putting it, you're putting it in your computer jotting up Tom Queeley on Frankel in the Sussex Stakes. And then obviously the, the, my most memorable memorable day, and it was a sad day as well because Henry was so frail, was, it was just uh, the, the Judmont International when Frankel won that. Oh God, what an amazing day. I mean, Tom was as cool as a cucumber, sat in the back, was a, was a star-studded field. He just cruised through and went whoosh. And if you'd, uh, you could feel the emotion on the Knavesmire, you know, from Teddy Grimthorpe, everyone, Jay, Jay, and the whole place was just, it was awash with emo emotion. So you go back there and there was Henry, had his, he, he had his stick in the thing and sort of you think, oh, please. And so that, it kept him alive. I mean, it has been said before, but that horse kept him going for so much longer. And then there was obviously the, the finale in Ascot in uh, Champions Day. Oh, an amazing, amazing occasion, and uh, just to see—it's just as much to see uh, Henry appreciate the adoration he had from all the people in the racing world, you know. And then, God rest his soul, he passed away, and 
you know, I was lucky enough to, well, it was an honour to go to be asked just to say, to da to him, you know, when he was laying to rest in in Warren Place. So, yeah, many many happy memories. He used to sort like he used to when I lived in Ashley. He used to silly old bugger. Used to pop round with a bottle of champagne, and he say, "What are you doing, anything?" You know, my my wife, my first wife at the time was there, and we would like no, we have we had an awful lot of fun together. You know, great great days, great days. Right, Tony, so we talked in part one, we talked about rubbing shoulders with um, racing royalty, not rubbing shoulders, being good friends with uh, racing royalty, yeah. Henry Cecil. You rub shoulders with uh, proper royalty, which we'll talk about in a bit. That's yeah. not bad for a, a young lad from Sunderland. Yeah, well, the, well, my father was obviously very proud. He was a, a miner from a, a village called New Silsworth. So when we used to go back to, I think some of the lads in the club thought that I was just a bull, bullshitter, that I was making these stories up that somebody from New South within Sunderland was meeting Henry Cecil, was meeting Sir Michael Stout and, and Alex Stewart and God knows who, you know, Luta Kumani. But obviously the, when they picked their sport and life up, there was my name in there. And, and it was true, you know. I mean, Stout, he, he didn't really have a, a great love of the press, so he was always a, he was always a bit tricky to, you know, you'd, you'd wait for your moment to ask him a question. And he was always too busy and it was it's like that was to me was bizarre because he was from Barbados and some of uh some of his great friends just happened to be friends of mine as well from my trips to the Caribbean and because I could only take holidays in there sort of in the, in the January February time you know when it was quiet you know and uh, we had the same set of friends out in in Barbados who loved me and obviously loved Stouty but uh, he didn't really. I, I, when I actually lost my job, he couldn't have been. He actually wrote a, a letter to the race and post campaigning for me not to be sacked. You know, uh, so he was he was supportive. But uh, you know, you'd go on the gallops, and he would be doing the best. To, you know, you want to ask a question, so you know you think, well, the the office want this story. So I thought, how am I going to get the how am I going to get the bugger? And I thought we don't know. We didn't normally go out much on a Monday because that was a very quiet day. So one Monday, I go up to the Alvahatry uh, gallop, thinking I'll catch the bugger. And there was uh, the late, lovely Coral Pritchard Gordon and uh, Lady Warren, you know. And uh, and I'm so I just got I was like blinking. I just sort of like look this and I can see I can see stoutly. I know what I'm going to ask him. Boom! I'm going in there. Anyway. They're going, not now, Tony, not now, Tony. And I'm going, what do you mean not now? It's never a good time to speak to this bugger. Anyway, I see this little old lady just to me right there in a in a in a in a Mac in a little headscarf and that. And I thought, oh God, it's the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, it this actually wasn't a good time to go to to, to see it, but uh I did when I was covering I used to cover the Royal Ascot meeting, uh you know, for the for the uh, well for for the racing post and for the uh, sport and life, I had a lot of good good assignments because I was one of the hopefully one of the top journalists on the paper. You know, and uh, Queen had a two-year-old running in the Chesham Stakes, and oh, I must have been about three foot away from her. Maybe maybe a little bit more, and I thought this is my opportunity to uh, speak to her. You know, I think I think I overstepped royal protocol, but 
you know, she would, you could see she had a, a lovely lady, had such a beaming smile on her face. And I thought, she's happy, this is a good time to ask her a question. And I sort of just, something just glib, sort of like, uh, how does that feel, Your Majesty, you know? And she says, oh, I'm absolutely delighted. Wasn't it wonderful? And I just thought, and, and I, I got a little bit more of a quote. If someone happens to look back, they say, and I thought, I was the only one who got a quote off the Queen. I thought, the red dot might have been on my head from the snipers on the roof, but, you know, what the hell? I, I, I'm a journalist, you know, I got my story. <laughs> so it was brilliant, you know, it was brilliant. The you um, going back to to the early your early yeah. days. Yeah. So you were born in Sunderland, yeah. but you you went to university at York. So yeah. I mean, you obviously did well academically because yeah. back in those days, it wasn't that easy for. Well, there was probably uh, oh from our school. We went to Ride Grammar School. That was, our fame to claim was uh, Richie Pitt playing in the in the nineteen seventy three Cup final, and we had John Strand, who was an actor. You know, but there's probably half a dozen or maybe maybe slightly more that actually went on to university and I was due to my father pushing me to be honest but we'd go on the it was my it was my love of racing that made me go to York uh we'd go down to the Ebor and I thought if I'm going to university I've gone to York and that it was it was a vehicle to to get into racing because as soon as I got there we had the old uh careers not the careers the uh freshers week and all the societies, and the first one I saw was University Turf Club. I thought, bang, you're in that. So two, like two days after, they, were, they gave us tickets to go to, to the October meeting, and that was it. And then we did every track in, uh, in Yorkshire, and we yeah, so were not in quite close proximity, and we would do, uh, you know, head up in entry, because they, they weren't far away, you know. But that that was that was uh, that was the start. I met some some uh, well some friends who have been friends for life. Dominic Burke, who is the boss of Jardine Lloyd Thompson, chairman at Newbury. Uh, he's got a, a, a horse called a horse winner name or a mare called the horse winner name. She was second in the in the uh, the mare's fine mare novices race at Cheltenham last year, and. Uh, you know, we I went to the, he lived in Liverpool, so we'd get invited across for the national and everything, you know, and do all that sort of stuff, you know. So you already had a love of horse racing before you went to university. Oh, so well, where that, that was embedded. Embedded. My father was my father was brought up on Harry Rag, and when I came to Newmarket, it was you know I couldn't wait to meet Jeff Rag, you know, lovely man, lovely man, you know. And so your dad was a punter, was he? Was that the... he loved a bet? Yeah, he he well when I was very young. Uh, times were hard. He was a miner, and I don't know if they'd been on strikes. I was too young to know then. But uh, he he was uh, a very generous man. But he didn't have a lot of money, and he at the time, and he uh, wanted to buy me a rocking horse. So he had his last thing, ten, ten bob, I think it was called then, and on a horse called Oxor that won the national. So the rotten horse arrived, didn't it? And you can imagine what the rotten horse was called then, can't you? Oxor. <laughs> so that was it. You know, we used to go. They used to go and feed. Like there was a farm, like a farm with a couple of horses in. We used to go all, walk. We used to walk miles around there, and I used to go feed the horses. So, so it was that. And then also the bookmakers. My grandmother. I was about two hundred and fifty yards from the bookmaker shop, down the back of our colliery house. And George Schuster's name was, and I used to be 
book these run I used to go I was on here obviously I was on here at nine but I used to give them the slip yeah, hand them the slip and put my grandmother's bets on so that was it you know first race meeting I went to was Redka for the what's called the Vogue's Gold Tankard you know and that was it you know so life lifelong passion for the game so a uh, career in something to do with horse racing is always on your mind yeah and you in the so where did it go from uh, from York University? Well, I went to uh, you know I went to work for Timeform when I when I graduated. I was at Timeform, uh, very strange times for a you know for a, for me because at the time the salary was it was a sort of salary you'd have to pay someone who had uh, very wealthy parents. I think I started in nineteen seventy. End of 79, I started on £2,800. I was living in a dingy bed sitting in Halifax when, when Jack the Ripper was about, and my mate took me down. I could never understand that. I never got interviewed, because you know, when I had that hoax about the, the voice and everything, and uh, they dropped me off, and I was living on Savile, near Savile Mower sort of thing. Uh, never got interviewed. And my mate who took me down, they, they tracked him down and interviewed him, you know, but uh, anyway. Uh, but it was uh, it was like a, another an apprenticeship, really. But I, I sort of like I was getting overlooked for promoter. I didn't really want to leave, to be honest. But at the time, but I kept getting over, overlooked for promotion. Some posh kid would come from Eton or somewhere. And they'd get their they'd get their writer's job, and I'd still do. I was assistant at handicapper then, which didn't sit nicely with me because I um, I always wanted to write, and uh, so I went to work for Weatherby's in. Wellingborough, which like within two minutes, I knew that I shouldn't have been there, because there was no they were trying to quell my interest in horse racing. I thought, well, you, you know, this ain't gonna work. How do you mean trying to quell it? Well, because it was more just an admin. I was editing the racing calendar, but it was just it was an admin job, you know. And I thought I saw it as a vehicle to other things. But I had a, the the editor of Ruff's guy used to ring me every week for. Uh, for uh, lists of amateur riders or lists of, uh, you know, the up-to-date lists of the jotties, etc., which went in Ruff's guide. And I just used to just plague him every week, any jobs at the Sporting Life, any jobs at the Sporting Life. And then eventually I wore the buggers down, you know. And I, gave, I went, uh, 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 luckily, uh, uh, Neil Cook, who was the editor, uh, was a great friend of uh, Alistair Down. And Alistair Down had been at York, and so we knew each other. We knew each other, and uh, obviously Alistair put a good word in for me. And I was there. I started on the same day at the Sport and Life Weekend uh, as Mike Catamall, who's obviously a very famous commentator, and uh, and also that that uh, superstar commentator uh, Simon Holt. He, he you know he started a week before us, but like we were this sort of three. Well, I would. I, I, it'd be nice to be in that bracket. But we were the three whiz kids, and that you know the the promotions went and they went to us if there was any. You know, we were we were pushed within the sport and life to to do better. And was the was the time at time form? Did that make you into a good punter? Uh, well, my, I remember uh, the first time I ever came to Newmarket because Phil Bull was still alive then, and I saw, thought like. Duff on my cap to Phil Bull. I thought, God, he's he's made it. 
so I come down to, to, to time form where Reg Griffin and uh, and uh, Jim McGrath and Phil Phil I think Phil Buzz he went in the same car but I came down with them my first visit and I uh, I just listened to Phil but I thought well he knows a lot more than me did me months wages in in three days at the Craven meeting now that was a lesson learned I thought Christ you know but uh, now by and large. Uh, you, you did well because you had the speed figures, you had the form, you know, and you watched the videos every day. So if you couldn't make a few quid out, you know, we were on such low wages, you couldn't make massive amounts of money, but it was a good grounding for anyone. Yeah, anyone. It was like it was the best place to go for a, for an, for an apprenticeship if you were going to go further up the ladder, you know. All right, Tony. So we'll go back. We'll go back to Newmarket, where we are now. We, at the beginning, we talked about you got the job as Newmarket correspondent for the yeah. Sporting Life. Henry Cecil's took you under his wing, um, so you're you're in you're sort of safely in Newmarket now, part of the uh, part of the team. Yeah. Um, anyone that remembers the Sporting Life from back in the day, remember that Warren Hill, which yeah. I'm told was you, would tip at yeah. the bottom of the box of, yeah. the, of the tipping things. So I, in my 18-year-old head when I first knew about Warren Hill, I always assumed there was a chap that got up at four o'clock in the morning with his thermos, a strong coffee and his powerful bins and he'd go and hide in the bushes yeah. and watch the secret gallops. Is that what it was like? No, not quite. We, we had like some, back when I started, I would be indebted to uh, David Mills, who was my understudy uh, when I was on the race and post. And I got jobs when I was on the Sport and Life for actually because he was here and he, he was an invaluable at hell. He had a an almost well, in fact he still has got an almost uh, photographic memory of a of a horse. I can recognise a fair few when we had Jane Buckner, the late Jane Jane Buckner, who was Henry's uh, nanny at one time, but she used to come on a gallop. So the three of us would like just uh, be out there. And at the time, there was legendary George Robinson, who who uh, used to do all the markings and stuff with his with his with his these friends, and they used to stand at the, on the hedge, you know, watching them, you know, and and would re register them, you know. But uh, a lot of the time, we the trainers like Henry and and, and Saeed Bin Sarua, uh, they used to help us out because it was, you know, they liked us and just sort of say, this is such and such coming along. If they had owners, uh, and we sometimes would have the one like it was quite funny because Sir Mark Prescott uh, would go up on there. We would be sat stood up on the on the uh, on the on the sort of whatever the stand on the Albahatry, and uh, Sir Mark would come along with his owners and say, uh, "Mr. Allen, Mr. Mills, would you kindly remove yourself? I have owners with me." But uh, you know that was pump. We he was fine. Sir Mark was brilliant, you know, but. Uh, so the trainers used to tell you they'd be sometimes, quite helpful, which your horses were enough. If sometimes, you saw one speeding away. But what I can say, what what I can say from a, you know, and this is this is uh, the, the the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, the form book was the the most invaluable guide for winners, because I would honestly say, going out from February till October, there would probably be half a dozen times during that year. When you'd watch a gallop and think that's a certainty that's you know think that's a lot of time to go out to find six winners isn't it you know 
and the, one of the ones I remember one of the ones I, I felt a bit sorry for him because uh, I uh, Michael Roberts I went out because obviously you needed your you needed your torch your headlights and everything because Clive Britton used to work the horses virtually in the dark but he was quite a laugh but he was good laugh you know Clive and I was watching this horse one day uh, down Water Hall which is where they start, like normally they start right towards the beginning of the year. We're down one hall and this lone soldier come, I thought, fuck me, Jesus, this is, this is, this is gonna. So anyway, it was due to run at, it was due to run at the Ascot, uh, the first Ascot meeting. And of course that, like Michael was down to ride it then and they got called off. <laughs> Cause next week it was, uh, or the, it was Guinea's week and Mick Canan got on it, it absolutely bolted up. but. There was like, so, you know, some trainers would have, there was clues, you know, like you'd have, uh, like if you saw a 70 horse, a 70 rated horse working with two 90 rated horses, you think, hang on a minute, they finish up sides or something, you know. But uh, there were certain gallops were like just explodes. I mean, my, one of my, uh, from my point of view, one of, one of the, one of the worst ones, well, I wouldn't say it was the worst one, but it was just, uh, it had a, uh, unforeseen circumstances, was watching King's Best before the derby. I was due to go to uh, Yarmouth, because Henry used to used to uh, gallop his derby horses after racing at Yarmouth, uh, you know, shortly before. And I went on the gallop before I was down to go to Yarmouth, and I saw King's Best. There was a listed horse working with it. They went across the flat, and there were about uh, 10 furlongs. This my listed horse went off like it was like a bat out of hell. And then Little Rock, it was a group two winner uh, of Sir Michael Stouts, uh, went sailing past the, the lead horse. And then there's uh, Kieran Fallon there, sat, sat looked like he was gonna have a cup of tea and have his breakfast sat on the horse. And he just went, bump, 12 lengths clear. So the office rang me and said, uh, what time are you leaving for Yarmouth? And I made the, this mistake of going, I don't need to go to Yarmouth. I've seen the Derby winner this morning, King's Best. I said, if that don't, if that doesn't, if, if that doesn't win the Derby, I haven't got a, ha a hole in my arse, you know? Of course, what happened 12 hours before the race, the poor bloody thing went wrong. So I was absolutely good. Cause it was a bit of like Richard Bearline when he said, I've seen the Derby winner, Shergar. It was all, the, 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 the uh, paper wanted it all emblazoned everywhere. Do you know what I mean? But uh, you know, obviously, it was a similar. One of the funniest Frankel gallops was we thought he was working on his own one day. This was again on the across the flat gallop, and he'd gone like twenty lengths clear of his lead horse because when they where they came from, where they swung round the bend, uh, past the racecourse stand. Uh, the lead horse had already been dropped then. He was The lead horse was supposed to carry him through to say the nine furlong pole and the Frankel had already gone and it looked like it was a solo gallop because he used to have, used to have solo gallops as well, you know, for horses. But it was just an, an, an amazing. But So how many touches did you land because of your special insight on the on the, on the gallops? Oh, it's impossible. Honestly, it's impossible to say. I was once, uh, there was... I think it was John Brown owned one at uh, at uh, run at Doncaster, and again it it was so well handicapped, one out one of Sir Henry's, and uh, I was told under no circumstances to write too much about it, 
because the amount of decay required. But uh, I believe somebody that, well, I know somebody I know actually got a BMW out of it because they won that much money. And it, it, the price didn't, it, it was about 10 to 1. It wanted won a handicap at Doncaster, you know. But absolutely bought dotted up, you know. But uh, and any special? Oh, I'll tell you the horse I would would because obviously to each side there was uh, there was a horse called Killer Instinct uh, owned by the Thoroughbred Corporation that was backed before it, it ran for the ne the pre for the following year's Guineas, and it was what they call a morning glory. Did everything on the gallops. And then when it got to the race course, phew, useless. It, I think it actually won a maiden at Warwick eventually. But uh, the one of the best, the press corps used to come down like uh, in them days before, before like for the for the Gallops trials, before the uh, the Guineas and before the before the Derby. And one they were all watching. Tembi was eight to thirteen for the. Uh, for the Derby, I think, at the time. And uh, they were all paying attention to Tembi. I had a nice lead horse to give him a nice easy lead. And of course, in behind, they weren't paying any attention. It was a horse called Alligan, who was a group a group winner, and another horse called Commander-in-Chief. And uh, I thought, I like this horse, Commander-in-Chief. You know, he'd, he, he, didn't he didn't race till he was three, but uh, he... he uh, Due to politics, Pat Edry wanted to get on Commander in Chief, but due to the politics of the situation, he had to stay on Kent Tembi. And as it turned out, uh, Michael Canan won the Derby on Commander in Chief. So that night we got the, the one of the haunts was the, called the Old Plough. Henry was up there, I went up to meet him and, and all that. I have a celebrated glass of champagne. And Geoffrey Farber, who was my op, well, I was on the Sporting Life at the time, nice old boy he was, you know, Geoffrey. But uh, not the sharpest, uh, you know, pencil in the box. But uh, he came in and he says, "You clever," and I won't use the word that he used. But uh, he says, "You've done me again," because I, I, I tipped Commander in Chief and he stuck with Tembi, you know. But that was that was one that were wonderful days because I think a lot of people who uh, read the Sporting Life. Uh, picked up on that and, and as a result did well over it so I was like revered then as they say revered <laughs> tell, tell us about the, the you were telling me about a mystery grey on the gallops what was, oh I can't remember Mr. oh 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 yeah sorry do forgive me yeah well there was uh so Mark as we said was very very secretive and uh happened to be on this occasion uh John Gosden uh, allowed him to work uh, a greyer called Hasten to Add with a couple of really good work. I asked John about this a few, well, a few days ago, and he can't remember, but he said they were very, very good re uh, lead horses for him. So Mark uh, put this Hasten to Add in the gallop, uh, on the round gallop, on on the you know, on the lime kilns. And uh, David and myself, David Mills and myself, were stood there watching this, and we see this uh, this grey sailing sailing clear. So we didn't know what it was at the time. So breakfast time, I ring Sir Mark, and, and I said to him, "Oh, what was that grey you worked, Sir Mark?" And he says, "It's uh, for me to know, and for you to find out." So what he didn't realise was in the horse and train. How stupid of me! But in the horse and training book, 
it was the only great older horse amongst his string. So it was easy to, to do. So obviously I put it in there and uh, Gosd Mr. Gosden, you know, John, you know, he says, he says to him the following day, I think it was the following day, and he says to him, yeah, you're slipping up, you old bugger. He says, you know, why didn't you borrow one of my sheets? You know, they would have been totally fucked. But anyway, uh, the following week, it was running in York, in the, in, it was the Batley Handicap Mile and Five at York. And uh, I sort of, I'd, I'd napped it in the paper. And I said, well, I rang some Mark, we'll just have a chat. I said, what do you think? He says, well, I think I might need the run, Tony. I thought, what the, hey, I thought, oh. Anyway, I backed it anyway, so I was going to suffer if it didn't. But it was back from he went, and I know he wasn't putting me away, but it went from eleven to two to seven to and bolted up. Uh, was installed as well, I was going to be installed as his favourite for the Cesarowicz. So, uh, so Mark did actually ring me and says, uh, in fact, this was before the Batley the Batley handicap. Uh, he uh, said, uh, "Do you have a little wager?" and, I, and I think I think he wanted to keep me under the radar, so I said, "Yeah, I'm not a massive punter, Sir Mark, but yeah, I would like to battle for." He said, "Do you want to battle for the Cesarowicz?" And I said, "Yeah." And so he uh, secured me some. He said, "I'll leave it with me." And I just thought, "Well, he's an honourable lord, isn't he? Let's leave it to him." And uh, I hastened to add, "If it had stayed, it would have bolted up, but it didn't quite stay two and a quarter miles at Newmarket." Anyway, the finished. I think they finished third or fourth, but. Sort of Monday morning, the, the phone rings, and there was some Mark, and he says, "Where are you, Mr. Ells?" And I said, "I'm just sat sat work." And he says, uh, "Would you like to come to my office?" And then he just just, boom, 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 paid the notes out, you know, straight away. Lovely, great man, great man. Right, Tony. I think you've been holding out on me a bit. So I asked about bets earlier on. You didn't really tell me much, but I've been told that you had a bit of a touch with George Washington. So come on. Well, that was one of the one of the the greatest opportunities of my betting career, because I said earlier I lived in Ashley, uh, which was close to the restaurant called the the Old Plough, and one of the uh, frequent, I think, believe still is a frequent visit was. Uh, uh, John Magnier and the Coolmore crew, they used to take a table there and turn up and stack the bottles of uh, Chateau Margot by the fire just to walk, bring them all the way from Ireland or wherever, bring them there. And I was it happened to be in there one evening with uh, Jeff Lester, who was my colleague on the Sport and Life, we were having a bit of supper in the bar and uh, we get uh, signalled across by John Magnier to join him for a glass of this, oh God, the wine, it was out of this world, most velveteen, uh, you know, Chateau Margot and they won the guineas that day with their footsteps in the sand and so we said congratulations well done you know what about your filly tomorrow Virginia Waters and uh, John kindly said he said oh we think she's got a very good chance and she did indeed win the guineas but he said the one you in, want, you lads want to be interested in is uh, George Washington and we think oh, what seeing running a two year old maiden so he says to us, uh, we'd like it to win. And he says, but if it doesn't win, it's not the end of the world. But I suggest you have a little flutter on it uh, for next year's 2000 guineas. So being the, the, the generous person that I am, I thought, I don't want to leave me mates out of this. So I had 700 quid on with, I had 
a 200 uh, 50 250 to 1 William Hill 300 at uh, 33s corals and 200 at 33s corals she came just short of 25 grand so of course next day uh, George decided he'd finish third to uh, league champion it was called and uh, then obviously trying to dispose of the bet was not gonna happen nobody why well, didn't want to buy a horse that you know for next year's guineas that has finished third in the new market maiden at the guineas meeting so i was left with i was stuck with the bet but of course he then went and won the phoenix stakes by eight lengths he won the national stakes he won the Jewest, and that uh anti-pause voucher was looking obviously a hell of a lot rosier and uh I actually laid off some of it to cover my stake to my good friend Martin Raymond, who people might know as the punter. He had a, I give him a 5,000 to a thousand and uh, just couldn't wait for the winter to come through. I was on duty that day at, uh, at the uh, Rolling Mile working for the, for the paper and he was six to four favorite for the guineas. Well, the, anyone who knows the press room, it's quite long and I was absolutely, I think I took the roof off, to be honest with you, I was hollering that much. And uh, just went, when he went past, I went bang, and just hit the clear glass window, you know, it's just a, a kiss, I was kissing everybody. My daughter Lauren was downstairs with her friends, uh, and I immediately ran down and said, there's me card. I says, just get everybody champagne. We had a, a party for a week, and, uh, then I, uh, with the, I was living on my own with the three children at the time, and uh, my my ex-wife did help out a lot. But uh, I took uh, Lauren and Megan to uh, Sorrento, Naples, Capri for a, a holiday. Then my uh, middle, my youngest one, she had a exchange thing. Took her to uh, Fort Lauderdale in the autumn, and then I went to America, uh, sorry, Australia for three weeks. Uh, on my own so the money was well spent but it was just it was a great great time you know yeah we've got to mention I hope you don't mind me mentioning no. that um, it's, you know it sounds like you've had the life of Ryan but actually yeah. you've had to be a bit of a survivor because you, yeah. you were left with three children yeah. and the rate the sporting life shut down so tell us a bit about the downside yeah it was the downside to it was that uh, I you know when the sporting life closed in 1998 uh, there was two of us, it was Tom Goff and myself, and neither of us wanted the other one to lose their job. Uh, I had three kids on, on my own, his wife was pregnant, and we were hoping they might keep both of us on, but it wasn't going to happen, you know. And uh, so it was virtually like a, it was like a short head between losing the kids and losing my house, uh, and thankfully. Uh, Tom Goff got a job as a, a bloodstock agent and they were looking for a new mark correspondent and I and I got my basically I got my job back you know and uh, that was that uh, carried on great for about I think I worked for this for the racing post for about 11 years but I uh, I fell foul of the the drink driving laws and, and lost my job so I was thrown into turmoil again it was obviously my own fault but uh, you know that was you know i think i could have 
I could have quite survived doing the position by employing a driver at the time, but they weren't interested. And uh, and then I got obviously got the job with Tom Quayley, uh, was his agent. I did some agent work for Martin Harley, and um, you remember Merkel or Demerkel with the flying? He got he was a very good jockey, but I think he, he annoyed someone. He annoyed uh, Mark Johnson because he did a he put his he put his hands out like that in the closing stages of a Group Two race in uh, in uh, Germany. And uh, bearing in mind that uh, when he he actually rode a, a race circuit too early once at Wolverhampton, and, and uh, Mark Johnson was quite happy to forgive him for that mistake, you know. But uh, you know, so I've survived. I know, you know, I've sort of. You you were quite you were quite close to Leicester Piggott. Yeah, Leicester. Uh, we that was uh, during the time when I was on the sport and life, and uh, it was uh, I used to sort of like. Through, it was through through writing a column with him, I used to bring him cigars back from from Cuba or something. If I went to Cuba or somewhere, I'd come back and I'd bring him a, some cigars. But uh, the first time I went down to see the old devil, uh, we were doing Goodwood Week, and uh, he had to do a tipping column. So he goes, "Yeah, Tony, I think Barrett is sorry about the impersonation, but uh, he goes, Barry Hughes will win the first one," and I says. What are you on about, Lester? He's got no chances. David Lord has got a two-year-old in there. He says they won't see which which end of it, end of it's going past the winning post, you know. And uh, you know, do you think so? So yeah, tip that one, tip that one. So, so off we go. Like anyway, basically next day I've gone down to do the column the next day, and there's Lester. Like he's laughing his head off at me. He goes, uh, you know, it was all over the race and put uh, over the sporting line. Sorry. It's gone. Uh, Leicester Piggott tips uh, four out of six selections at their good foot. I'm saying, fucking great, this isn't it? He says, says you're doing all the work and tipping all the winners, and I'm getting all the money. <laughs> so, but he was, and, and I saw him right to the to the end. I mean, I was friendly with his uh, with his son. With his son, his son went to nursery with my youngest daughter, and. Uh, I was at uh, the champions meeting. I managed. To, I was took some friends in and I said, "Do you know Lester Big?" I said, "You watch this." And I said, "Lester." And I goes, "Come." And there, there's me and him arm in arm, like you know. So it was, it was, it's great, man. I mean, I must. Be, if I don't do anything else, I must pay tribute uh, to the to the to his family, you know, the Haggis family, and, and and Jamie Piggott for the memorial service in Chelsea last last. Uh, just before before Christmas, absolutely brilliant. The whole the whole show, just I mean, if Lester was looking down, he would say, "Class act." Yeah, that's the way he wanted to do it. And I thought, great. I was so proud to be there. And New New Market has been your home for what? 30? Thirty-two years now, thirty-three years. Yeah. So is it? How much has it changed in that time? Oh, an awful lot. You know, it was. You dreamed of coming here one time, you know. Uh, you know, I just had that mystique about it, but it's that's disappeared. It's not, it's not half as nice a town as it used to be. I used to like when they they have the the craving in in midweek, and you go on, you know, that sort of thing, and and, and it's same, those sort of those those meetings that ended, you know, on a, on a like on a, it'd be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday sort of thing, you know, but. It's it's not it's not as nice a town as it was, you know. 
There's plenty of characters here. Are there any other characters that spring to mind that you uh, you got any stories about? Oh, well, well, the the fame probably the most famous one is uh, Barney Curley, and he, again, I, I was actually I was a bit annoyed this time because my neighbour was Andrew Stringer, and Andrew used to sort of nip into my house in Ashley and, and drink my ex or brandy him and his wife, but obviously you know that Bar Barney was taught very very secretive and. One day, I've never seen so many 50 pound notes in Andrew's house. Magic combination one at Sandown. But uh, Barney used to come round and like I'd cook a lamb stew for Paddy's dear. And the first one, first one knocked on the door was, was Barney. Had a massive, you know, he didn't drink really. He had the odd glass of wine, but he didn't really drink. But God, could he eat? So he'd give him one bowl, he'd go, can I, can I have another one? You know, I said, help yourself, Barney. You know, probably had another one, and he would even have a third one. And uh, uh, Tom used to, well, Tom used to, enter, Tom Quaid used to entertain him, so up to right, right the way up until his death. You know, and he was a great character. He'd come round, he'd sit next to me, and we'd take the piss out of each other. And uh, I remember him saying, uh, he says, mm, ah, you know, with a cigarette. Ah, win double, Tony. I says, what's that? He says, you and Jerry Minnesota were your choice of women. Great, <laughs> priceless, priceless. I still, I still go. I went up to his, uh, to his grave just to have a few words. You know, last last year, you know, just to, because I did. You know, I don't peep. I think it was misunderstood amongst some, some people, but wonderful, wonderful character. That's what's missing in the game now. People like him. You know, and this all this betting business now. You know, he would be well. Like he, he, I think he, I can't remember he said this to, but he said the, he said the the best time in the game was when he was gone. You know, some of them bets he was getting on was were phenomenal. You know, and some of the coups he landed, amazing. You know, but good luck to you, Barney. Yeah, good old Barney. He's the one that got away for these interviews. Yeah. Um, getting to the end of the interview with you now, Tony. Um, what are you doing at the moment? Uh, I do stable tours for uh, at the races. I've just recently been down to Nicky Henderson's, Dan Skelton's, and uh, I've interviewed Emma Lavelle. Uh, this week I'm trying to get all the Richard Newland, and then we got Monday. We've got the Nichols pre Cheltenham stable tour. Uh, go a bit, do a bit of racing. Just keep myself busy. Have a few bets. Just try and nick a few quid here and there, and. Just basically survive because that's what I am. I'm a survivor. <laughs> and before, and you write a book. Yeah, I'm starting to write a, a, a book. I just thought this it needs to be done. Just I went to see Sir Mark uh, to, to have a look at. Uh, there's a book called uh, Men and Horses I Have Known, written by the Honourable George Lampton, and he was the the son of Lord Durham. Well, I was the son of a, a miner called Sam, who was my hero. So I'm going to do it from like the punk rock perspective. Brilliant. Yeah. So we look forward to that. And, um, Let's hope so. Yes. Let's hope it's an epic. <laughs> I'm sure it will be. Yeah. Anyway, Tony Oves, thanks very much for your time. My and, uh, pleasure. I hope your 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 viewers enjoy this, and uh, I'm sure they will. Thank you very much. My pleasure.